0: The Museum of Modern Art has just reopened their whole collection in New York and they're putting in women of color, Latinos, and uh, its they're trying to diversify their collection, but of course it's m- still mostly men. But we... I feel sort of heartened by this and then upset not to be part of it, but <laughs> at the same time, we actually went and marched in front of the Museum of Modern Art. So I feel... I put my time in protesting and now it's taken so long for these protests to have any effect. I think the tokenism is very uh, helpful because at least it gets some people some recognition and um, there's a lot more women curators so that's making a big difference. There's a lot more attention to people of color in New York. I'm just talking about New York because I don't know any place else I could tell you in Brooklyn what's going on. And in the Museum of Modern Art, this is very interesting what they've done. They've taken Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon and they've put Faith Ringgold, who's a very distinguished, older, extremely older, like 90 year old black artist, a huge painting by her in the same room. And this has created an outroar. And I don't know if that's tokenism or is it progress, you know? I think it's actually progress. And a lot of people say, well, her painting isn't as good as his painting. And why are you putting her painting, which is from the 60s, and it's about a sort of a race riot? Why are you putting her painting next to his painting? because it provokes this conversation and it's beyond tokenism when you start doing things like that because hers is a really big painting. So it's. I haven't seen it myself because I've been away and it just opened last week or this week even. But they are attempting to open up the story of art and include more voices. And so I'm not sure that tokenism is really the word I would use. I would say it's... progress (laughs) for me you know having fought for these things you know because none of this happened by accident Having fought for these things, like been on demonstrations with a placard in front of a museum, I think it's progress, because we you had a show maybe in the 80s or the 70s, it would be 150 men and two women maybe. So now they're actually putting more women's work in. I think it'll change the dialogue. It's even changing the art market to some degree. And a lot of the galleries, I mean, it's not that much progress, but a lot of galleries are trying to actually include more women artists in their rosters, and they're trying to include more um, artists of color. It is probably tokenism, but maybe it's good. You know, tokenism is better than, you know, it was better to have President Obama than it was to have President Trump. I don't know if that was tokenism, but he was better, you know? So... I prefer having tokenism to having nothing, which is what we had before.
1: Susan B. defends the political and subversive potential that develops when art and pleasure unite, which is why imagination, poetry, humor, Subjectivity, textures, colors, lines, and matter play an essential role in her work, both in her collages and paintings, and her artist books. Susan B was born in New York, where she has always lived and worked. As an art student in the late 60s, she first came in contact with feminist activism and other social movements, such as black power, gay rights, and protests against the Vietnam War. In 1986, she embarked on the project Meaning, a self-managed art magazine that she co-edited with fellow artist Mira Shore for 30 years. From the strict black and white pages of Meaning, a plurality of voices, artists, poets, thinkers, and writers have discussed and reflected on art and feminism, art and racism, art and maternity, art and activism, and on censorship, sexuality, poetry, aesthetics, and visual culture. In this podcast, Susan B. talks about the particularities of being a woman and an artist who has passed the age threshold of 65 in New York's artistic ecosystem today. She also reflects on the possible virtues of tokenism in relation to the historical and still crucial demands of feminism. Bee also talks about her paintings and work processes, and about the importance of creating and working as part of a community, as well as looking back to the early years of meaning and her participation in AIR Gallery, the first cooperative women's gallery in the United States.
0: I sort of like being invisible, frankly. I was very visible, you know, as a when I was younger, you know, men all over me. I didn't like that and actually I like being invisible in a way. It's sort of very refreshing. Nobody ever looks at you. You can do whatever you want. All the women I know of my age are like very You know, we're very stubborn and, like, just do whatever we damn well, please, because who cares at this point? You know, it's too late, (laughs) to really. We don't, you know, it doesn't matter in a way. I I just think, and it's, it's a very interesting period in New York for older women artists. And some of my friends are having their first success. They're almost 70. Some of them are older than 70. Cecilia Vicuna, she's in her 70s. I have all these friends who are, like, from age 70 to 90 who are having success or over 100 like Carmen Herrera. I mean it's 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 astounding. I mean some of these one woman has having her first solo show she's 99. So we have a joke in New York among women artists of my age which is you got to stay in shape you got to, you know, do your exercise, eat right and everything cuz you got to make it to 90 because that's when somebody will finally pay attention to you. It's not a joke, it's really true. I mean, it is a big topic among women artists of my age and older. And apparently I'm not quite old enough. So, I'm like waiting to get old enough to be recognized. So it's very um, upsetting in a way, but on the other hand, it's like, that's what's happening. And there's a market now for older women artists and maybe some artists of color. And as a painter on top of that, you know, forget it. But um, painting has made a comeback, which is good, but I haven't quite made a comeback myself. I have not broken out of the ghetto, (laughs) which is women artists, figurative painters, colorful figurative painters, whatever. Um, uh, You know, I'm just, like, right under the curve. I think it's very nice to get recognition. The problem for a lot of my friends who are—I have a, a very good friend, this painter named Judith Lynn Harris who's a wonderful painter, she's 79. She's almost 80, and as she told me, she's selling all of her work, she's in all the art fairs, she's getting into museums. All these great things are happening for her, but she's very, you know, she can hard, she has arthritis, her legs hurt, she doesn't have the stamina that she has. She's enjoying it, but she's in a lot of pain. So I think what's happening for some of these women artists that are getting, to this stage is that they're not in such great shape; that their health isn't so good, or they die right before their first, you know, big museum show. We've had a few of those. I mean, it happens like all the time. So. I see that happening, and so I'm, like, more eager to get recognition while I'm still able to walk around, you know, because I see um, this woman, Howardina Pindell, who was the original founding member of AIR, the first black member. She's really a, a very amazing artist, and I've always liked her work. But she keeps getting awards, and now she's getting all this recognition, and they have to wheel her out in a wheelchair. I mean, she can't even walk anymore. I know she's happy because I spoke to her. <laughs> She's very happy. But I just feel like, wouldn't it have been nicer like, to give her this recognition when she was young and would really have enjoyed it in a different way? Because she was very poor for many years. So, you know, she didn't even have enough to eat. I mean, <laughs> why wait until the woman is like, you know, you're wheeling her out for her rewards? Um, so... I guess I look at it from my perspective because I'm still fairly hardy. <laughs> I'm in a good health, but I'm just worried, you know, like, am I gonna make it to, you know, because my mother died when she was 60 and she was a painter. So it's always been on my mind that, you know, I should try to get as much done now I'm 67 years old, so I've been practicing since really childhood because my parents were artists and I grew up in New York, so I kind of was part of the scene. As a child, I was dragged to all these abstract expressionist galleries. My mother was a painter also, so I went to school in New York at the High School of Music and Art, which was a its a fantastic high school that was in Harlem, so it was first of all, very diverse, you know, a lot of black and white students, and it was also during the 60s. So it was a very political time. And I think getting into feminism, when I went to an all-girls Barnard, which is an all-girls college, was a really important step. So I've followed that trajectory till now, because now I'm in a feminist co-op, the oldest women's Gallery in New York, which goes back to 1972, had a lot of famous members, um, including Anna Mingetta and Nancy Spiro and Judy Bernstein, and I knew a lot of those people, and these were very important people for me to see in action, because they were young, I was young. So I think coming out of that trajectory and being still a feminist when it's very problematic for a lot of people, especially second wave feminism, is really frowned on a lot. Plus, um, I guess at this point, I'm very involved with all the poets. Um, it's, there's a book by Marjorie Perloff about Frank O'Hara called Poet Among the Painters. And I always think I'm a painter among the poets, you know, because really my friends are and supporters and even collectors to a large degree are poets. So that's unusual um, to be so embedded in a poetry scene in New York because I met Charles Bernstein when I was in high school. So we've been together for 50 years. So you'd have to say that's a long time. (laughs) Um, And I'm also having my ninth solo show of paintings at AIR. Um, In addition, I've done 16 artist books and I'm working on a 17th artist book with Johanna Drucker and The other thing is, of course, the magazine, which I did with Mira for 30 years. Everything just took long time. <laughs> my life takes a long time to gel. I don't know why. But, you know, I, I started all sorts of projects and then just kept at them because I'm very, very dogged. I don't know if that's a word in, in Spanish, but, you know, like determined or like I don't give up, but I should have given up. A lot of my friends have abandoned art making, and they've abandoned poetry, and they've, you know, they've had bad things happen to them. And so I just kept at it, because I just am very prolific, and I like to work. And um, and I like the idea of a community. I think, I think the part of art making that people don't really value enough is community. And even though it's a very... Um, backstabbing, envious, horrible, rivalrous business with a lot of bad aspects, especially in New York where everything is money-based. There still is a question of community and I really kind of devoted myself to it's probably very quixotic you know in the don quixote sense but I, I have this quest for a community and I have one in my gallery I've had one in my magazine I've had one with the poets I've had one with the collaborators so for me art is not just a solo practice it's really about um, a larger a larger outreach you know it's also about who comes to hear you talk when you give talks because I usually have an event with my solo shows I almost always have a talk or a book party or something to me it's a broader practice I think you know if I just stayed in my studio all day I have friends that just stay in their studio all day and paint and they never talk to anybody I mean they have a few friends but you know I mean they don't go out and do anything And probably that's where my practice differs from a lot of people because I'm actually more interested in the outreach perspective rather than just staying in my, I can stay in my studio and paint, I'll probably be happier. But, you know, I really want to, I want to know also what people are thinking about when they see my work, like what, what are they thinking? And, you know, you get a lot of criticism. So you have to be ready for all of that. I mean, you have to be a little bit sensitive and a little bit tough. (laughs) At the same time, you can't just let everybody walk over you, which is a a life lesson that's taken about 67 years to figure out. on language was fun. Um, I mean, it was happening in my apartment, (laughs) so it was there, let's put it that way. And we just came up with this idea. I made the logo with my father helped me. It was all pasted by hand, you know, was all pre-computer, pre-email, pre-computer, pre-everything. So Bruce and Charles decided to start a magazine with Ron, and they've just come out with a book of their letters in which they discuss, because originally I had wanted to be part of the magazine. I was going to have the art part of the magazine. It was going to be like more of an inclusive magazine, but I got pushed out. And um, so they did their magazine, the two of them, but it was done in my house on my floor in my studio. So It was all typed up by different poets and then we would cut it up and uh, I would paste it down with glue. So it was glued, (laughs) what could I say? And I wrote a few things for it, mostly because I was writing uh, my thesis for Hunter on Moholy-Nagy and photograms, so there was a piece of mine in um, issue, I don't know which issue. And then Bruce would come over and we'd sit on the floor and I took the scissors, he sprayed, <laughs> he sprayed it so it didn't smudge. <laughs> and then I would take the scissors and cut it up and make a magazine. That was it, really. It was a lot like that. And I, meaning started the same way because I also pasted that one up. Um, although there was a computer involved in making the type. But, you know, it's very material, these things. It was a material <laughs> object <laughs> and it was making a material object. So that's what we did. And um, they got subscribers. So that was very exciting. And we were so excited at Meaning. The first time we sent it out, we sent out a flyer for Meaning in 1986. And we got subscribers for the first year. And So we realized we had to make a second issue. (laughs) So we knew all these Fluxus people, and a lot of people had a small magazine. I mean, having a small magazine was not a very distinguishing thing at the time. Everybody had a magazine, you know, like all the poets had magazines, a lot of the artists had magazines. And they were all done like this one with no money and no pictures and no color. So we, meaning had no pictures, no color, And um, you had to either read it or you didn't read it. You looked at the color of the cover, which was always a very nice color. That was our main decision, was what color to make the cover. Um, So for 10 years we had no pictures and no, we did a magazine, an art magazine without pictures, which made it very odd because we had no budget. So we didn't have any advertising. So it had to be done the cheapest possible way. And the cheapest possible way was to type it up and cut it up. So we started in 1986. And we were in our 30s when we started it. And we were in our 60s when we ended it. because I think you have to take charge of the dialogue. That was the idea of meaning, was that we wanted to take charge of the conversation. We didn't want to keep being pushed around, which we were definitely pushed around or ignored, even worse than being pushed around as being ignored. So I didn't want to be ignored, so we just decided we would start our own magazine because I had worked on language. Um, I was a designer of language, and I also worked for language, so I had seen how you could just start a magazine. Of course, I didn't expect it to last that long. Because, you know, language was only three or four years, and meaning was 30 years. And that's a long time to do anything, I think, you know. It's probably too long to do anything. Mira and I are childhood friends, Mira Shore, and our parents were both artists. Her parents, and my parents were friends. So this is actually a childhood project in some way, but we had 30 years to think about also injecting painting back into the conversation because it was during the time of October and all of these hard-edge um, minimalists who I studied with. And she came out of the feminist art program that was in, she was part of Woman House, which was in California. Well, she had this um, article that she had written that was very critical of the painter David Sally that, um because she felt that he was exploiting women's bodies in his work, like, showing a lot of women's bodies, from, w- using women's bodies in his work in an exploitive way. That's a simplification of what she said in her essay, which is even more, much more extreme, but she couldn't get that essay published anywhere. She sent it to Art Form. she sent it to October, she sent it to, I don't know, all whatever the important magazines were during this whole period of time. And she couldn't get it published. And so I just, and our studios were near each other. So at lunch, I stupidly said, <laughs> like, well, we'll just publish it, you know, we'll publish it. And I originally just thought, well, we'll just publish it, you know, make it like language, just a little pamphlet. But somehow it ended up getting more, we got more involved. And I thought, well, you can't just publish that. We should have some things around it. So I wrote a piece, and then Johanna Drucker wrote a piece. Mimi Gross Charles wrote a piece. I can't remember everything that was in. And it was also during the time when people were dying of AIDS in New York. And this young artist, we had been part of an artists and critics group that met I guess it was once a month and we met often at this artist renee santos's loft and then he was in his 20s and he was a wonderful artist and he died of aids and it was a very big shock it was like 1985 he was one of the first and so we wanted to publish a tribute to him not realizing that almost every other person was going to die of aids behind him he was one of the first but so in the first issue we have uh, excerpts from his notebooks that another friend of ours had put together and also another artist had died recently and we wanted to have a tribute to him so we had a few poets write in Porfirio donna had also died and i think lee sherry and alan davies and maybe one other person wrote so we thought we had like enough um, and I wrote about my experiences of not being able to get shown, which is all quotes from things that people said to me in my in my studio, and they're all true. And I have many more to add to that. I, that piece could go on for, like, pages and pages, but it, it was somewhat embarrassing because they were a lot of negative things that people said in my studio, but I decided to make a piece out of it. So as I say, people subscribe. The first person to subscribe was Hannah Wiener, of all people, which really surprised me. (laughs) And um, people subscribed, so we just went from there. But I felt like the time was ripe because the um, commercial art magazines were so um, involved with commerce, and they weren't involved with art in my view and they weren't involved with all these activist political issues. And they wouldn't publish, they wouldn't review women, they didn't publish women. And I really thought the time was right for us to try to do this. I didn't expect it to last, honestly. It was more like a lark. (laughs) You know, when you just think, oh, okay, I'll do this, you know, see what happens. And Certainly didn't expect it to last for 30 years, but I always seem to do things for at least somewhere between 30 to 50 years. Um it's as I it's very hard to keep a project up for so long. If we came more, you know, we came out twice a year. That's a lot actually. I think it's a lot. Yeah, so well, I mean I think you have to go back to the 60s actually because I was still in high school when the sort of feminist movement in New York was really happening, and also the Black Panthers. I mean, there was so much going on that there were so many movements happening at the same time, the the gay rights and the, and the anti-Vietnam War, and then, you know, women. It was all happening at the same time, and we were still in high school, so it was like 68, 69. There were protests all the time on the streets because the men, the young men in, that I knew were could be drafted to go to Vietnam, and they didn't want to go to Vietnam. And then I was in an integrated high school that was black and white, and there were a lot of very militant black students. So... I was sort of in the middle of the whole thing. It was very intense. My mother was also involved with the feminist art movement. It was just sort of starting. Um, So AIR was formed in 72, but I was at Barnard, which was like very heavy feminist college because it was all women. And it was happening at the same time as a lot of protests were happening at Columbia, which is across the way. So people were being arrested at Columbia. Um, and we were constantly marching. I hardly ever went to <laughs> class, actually, but um we always had marches or school would the entire school would walk out of high school, and we would just go down to Wall Street and protest. So there was constant activity of that sort. Um, and it was very exciting. I thought it was very exciting to find out to hear, you know, Kate Millett and Katherine Stimson, who was my professor. Um, All these people were doing, I took the first women's history course at Barnard. There had never been such a thing. Um, All these things were very new and people were just talking, starting to talk about it. But it was still kind of in the bubbling up phase, you know. It was just kind of bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And it was also the 60s there at Woodstock and all of this stuff like that. So it was, uh, I would say it was a pretty great time. And we were very optimistic, which is why I'm not so optimistic now because, you know, 50 years after Woodstock, which Charles and I went to and didn't even like, you know, I have a different feeling about uh, what happened from the 60s. You know, kind of people just went into their bourgeois lives and, you know, they didn't really pursue all of these things. And then Trump, who's also in the 70s, happened, (laughs) you know, so there was... You know, good things came out of it and bad things, but it was exciting. I have to say, taking those first women's history courses was very exciting. Studying Adrienne Rich and, um, you know, Sylvia Plath and uh, Gertrude Stein at Barnard was very exciting. Also, finding out about these women artists' co-ops that hadn't, they didn't, they, they hadn't formed yet, actually. But um, when I was a student at Hunter... I went to graduate school at Hunter. With um, that's where I became more involved with the feminist art movement because I, my friend from, who I'm still very, very close with, Joan Snitzer was the director of A.I.R., and she took me to go to these meet. You know, I had only male art teachers. And there was no talk, and it was very—I felt very discriminated against. Having come out of an all-women's college, I wasn't used to having male art—male teachers, even. I had had these years with feminism. So all of a sudden, I was stuck back in the male art world, and it was very shocking in a way. So I wanted to find out what was going on, and I would start going to these talks. They had every Monday a talk— and it was like Anna, and it was like Mary Beth, all these people that um, would just talk about different issues. So um, I would just go to those, and I learned so much. And I also found out, you know, that some of my teachers were not against feminism, <laughs> but that was OK. It was, it was a very um, intellectually stimulating period, I think. The gallery, the feminist art galleries, there were a few. They were formed, they came out of this. There was the Workers' Art Coalition. And one thing that was happening at Columbia during the Vietnam era was that, I actually went to a meeting like this. It was like the organizing meeting for um, one of the strikes we were about to have. And the women were just supposed to make coffee. They weren't even supposed to talk. And that's when things got really hairy, (laughs) because I think at that point, women realized we were girls, but we realized that we were not even supposed to really talk. We were supposed to, like, make the coffee and bring the guys the donuts or something. And that really made. But on the other hand, the men were the ones who were being drafted. So for them, it was a life and death issue. For women, we were not being drafted, but we were being asked to be like these handmaidens to these men. And, uh, you know, so then they sep- there was a lot of separation that happened between the black power movement started to be very, you know, not have white people be part of it. And then the women's movement took off in another direction in the gay rights movement. There was a lot of splintering off in different directions which ultimately i think was a good thing because it gave each you know now probably it's gone too far (laughs) the identity politics i think has gone too far and it's very hard to um see a person as a whole like they're not just like i'm not just a woman i'm a person whatever but you know i mean it's hard to the identity politics thing now you have to like say who you are You know, you're this, that, 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 you know, and that defines who you are. But at the time, it was just sort of coming to fruition, and it wasn't clear how it was going to be. So it was more a question of taking power back from the male artists that were running everything, (laughs) because also the male gallerists, but even the female gallerists mostly showed men. So there were a lot of kind of powerful women who were gallerists. But they showed men also, because that's where the money was. They couldn't make any money. They didn't sell any women's work. And if it sold, it sold for less. So it was very difficult time. The women were mostly overshadowed. And I think, so the feminist movement, you know, at the beginning, I went to these, let's see, it was Kate Millett and who was it? Uh, I can't remember even, but it was a lot of Shulamith Firestone. There were all these great feminist theorists that were talking and they would give talks and there were all these fights and, you know, I love that. (laughs) To me it was very exciting that that women were having these vocal arguments um, during that time period and it didn't work out that well necessarily you know, like there was, I don't really want to go into it, but you know, a lot of bad things happened. A lot of these women went mad and they had bad lives. Maybe they would have had bad lives anyway. I don't know. I'm just saying that overall, you, you know, some people did well and, and, and got stronger and some people didn't. But You know, it was a very exciting period, and people coming out, I think, like Adrienne Rich, when she said she was a lesbian, that was a very important moment, and she became a friend of mine. So, I mean, these these things were very important. Um, Tried to get more women of color involved in the feminist art movement, which was very difficult and it w- and so there were a lot of separatists there was like a black women's gallery called just above midtown Um, Well, I think art still provides beauty. I still get a lot of pleasure from art. And one thing that we wanted to talk about in Meaning in our magazine was pleasure in art. It's like an um, under-talked-about thing. Because there's so much, there. well, coming out of minimalism and conceptual art, there was a lot of lack of pleasure in a lot of that work. Whereas people like Carole Schneeman, who was a friend of mine, Who are doing performance art was a lot about pleasure of the body and pleasure of color and pleasure of you know composition. I mean I'm very old-fashioned person so to me like composition, like color, all these things, texture, (laughs) all the things that art can do are really important And when I was studying with the Minimalists, um, they didn't like my work because it was so colorful and so personal in a way. And I wanted to do that. I want to be like, I'm in favor of pleasure. And I mean, to me, it's fairy tales, um, imagination is really important, fantasy, all these things that are degraded in a lot of current thinking about art. I think are very important, and I think they need to be brought back into art. So and poetry, um, you know, pleasure, poetry, all these things are very important to me. And I think in my friend's work, because I'm surrounded by artists and poets, that the imagination is very underrated, you know, let there be more fantasy. Let there be more pleasure. Let there be more, you know, dreams. Um, I look at dreams. I look at, at myths, mythology. I've been doing more work around mythology lately. Um, also sort of um, mythological creatures like harpies. I think actually in the medieval times, the harpies were very important. This is a side of my my thinking right now is that looking through, I looked at a lot of medieval manuscripts for my new paintings, and I'm actually interested in the role of women as uh, monsters, and how monsters are very important in um, in the their role in the imagination and how they went against what religious perceptions were putting forward. So. Um, I think I lost track of the pain but (laughs) the big picture is that I think art um still has a you know you see people lining up to go to art shows um I'm always very happy when I see that that people actually want art I don't know what they want from art because they're mostly taking selfies but still something is being transmitted by art and literature and dance and music I have a lot of friends that are dancers and musicians I mean there's a you know, I get I enjoy going to see them perform and I enjoy hearing them make music. So I think enjoyment and pleasure is a very underrated thing at this moment um, because everything is about the idea. Like, what's the idea behind this work? But sometimes it's not about ideas. I mean, it is about ideas. I think you can take an idea and put it into a pleasurable context. But I don't think you have to make it like medicine, like the, you really have to suffer for art to look at art. I mean, I get a lot of pleasure out of looking at paintings. That's why I stayed with painting. I was a photographer for a while. I did do I went through my minimalist phase, but um, I. I was very rebellious, and I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't able to stick with the program. You know, I just did what I wanted to do, because if I'm not pleasing myself, who am I going to please? You know, at least I should enjoy my work. You know, and then you hope there's an audience beyond yourself. But if I don't enjoy what I'm doing, then it's nobody's going to enjoy it either. You know, they're going to like look at my work and be very sad because they're not having a good. T- and people say, "Oh, your work's so cheery." And it's actually not true. I'm like a very uh, melancholy person. But for some reason, my work doesn't appear to be. It's, it's because I use my work to cheer myself up. So I think the material of your, whatever you do, the material is really important also. So ideas and material um, have to combine, in my view. I use a lot of um you know, found material or usually I'm working off of, uh, I I consider them sort of translations of, uh, so sometimes I see a painting that I really am attracted to, like I've been using a lot of Caspar David Friedrich or film stills or, I have a lot of material that I, um, as I was using the medieval uh, illuminations So sometimes I take a small, usually a very small, subject and image and I blow it up. And then I decide from there. Sometimes I just make it up, depending on my, you know, a lot of it's sort of made up, but it could be based on something. So I tend to like to have an inspiration. I don't usually start with a totally blank canvas. I usually have a drawing, like a pencil drawing underneath and sometimes I make a sketch you know it's hard to say what the I get inspired by going to see different things I get ideas and then I have a buy a postcard and then I think oh I could use that and maybe transform it I think of it more as a transformation or a translation of an image into my own genre or my own way of perception so That's what I've been doing. I mean, I look at a lot like, I don't know if you know the artist Jess, who was the lover of Robert Duncan, but he called his work translations. And they were based on an image, usually a photo, that he would clip out of a newspaper and he would use the, the basic outlines, but he would translate it into painting. So I think, you know, that my work is a... And it's a a transformation and a translation. In a way, it's true of the books too, because I'm taking the poet's work and I'm um, thinking about how to approach it and how to read it for myself. And I think it's the same thing with the images, that it's a way of, because sometimes like I'll even, I often change the gender of the main character. So if I'm using a film still, I might change a man to a woman. I make shifts in what the imagery is. I don't feel, I'm not appropriating directly and I'm not, I don't feel any fidelity. different um because I'm because I was born in (laughs) in Manhattan I'm a native you know very different thing I grew up in Manhattan so I don't feel the same way that a lot of people feel who came there's so many artists global artists who come to New York to to become artists which is actually more like my parents but I was born there, so I don't really think in the same terms about it. I think it's different for natives. And one thing I've always said, which is very funny, but is very true, like in most, almost every place, like I'm sure in, true in Barcelona too, there is a feeling that you should promote the local artists, but there is no feeling like that. In New York, you cannot be a lo- being a local artist gets you nowhere, you know, because there's no thought that there is a local artist what is a local artist? We don't have a local artist because we're not really locals. And it's because it's such a global community and a lot of people move there to be artists. In our gallery, too, we have people from all over. You know, so it's um, it's hard to be a native New Yorker, but um, in terms of whether the 60s was great, I guess it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine for me, but um, I, as all those movements starting was very exciting. The fifties was pretty repressed um, in New York. You know, the McCarthy era was very bad when um, when all the communists were being persecuted. And I think it was a very conservative time after the World War II. In new york and then when everything opened up in the 60s and there was woodstock and the bns and the marches and the feminism and all that was very exciting and then things kind of got went downhill and i moved to the west coast for two years um then i came back and there was a lot of crime it was a very difficult time the 70s uh, there was a lot of performance art it was very cheap to live So people were making art, and they had lofts, and they started organizations, because everything was very cheap. But it was not a golden era. People think it was a golden era. The Whitney did a whole show around the 70s. And um, with this curator, Jay Sanders, who's much younger and sort of has an idealized view of the 70s. But in fact, there was so much crime and garbage and blackouts and problems. And so I, I wouldn't say it was a golden era, but in a way for artists, it was because it was very cheap to live there. And for poets, it was very cheap to live there. And you could just like do a show and it would cost you very little. You could get a loft, you could get a gallery space. It was all very cheap and there wasn't so commercial. So now it's unfortunately so gentrified that a lot of artists are leaving. A lot of my friends have left um, because you can't afford to live there anymore. If I, and they're getting kicked out of their studios all the time, constantly. I lost my studio. I mean, it, it, you just you can't afford to live there unless you're a very rich artist. You have to be, or you inherited a lot of money, trust fund. That's trust fund artists. It's a big category. You're either very wealthy from a very wealthy family or you're um, a very successful artist. But if you're on the margins, I mean, I know an artist now who's living in a homeless shelter. I mean, it's a very, very hard time to be an artist in New York if you're not a very rich, successful, famous artist. You're in trouble. Or if you don't have a good job, You know, most artists teach in New York or they work at other jobs, but a lot of people have left. They've gone um, upstate into the countryside because they can't afford it anymore. They've gotten kicked out of their lofts. Even after 40 years. I mean, I know this artist Donna Dennis just... 40 years, she was one of the first people to be in a loft in, in Tribeca, and she just got... Her building, you know, they bought it and they are kicking her out and she had to move upstate to the countryside. She's happy enough, but you know, it's hard. I mean, she's in her 70s. A lot of people are losing their studios. So I would say it's not a great situation at the moment. And it's very expensive and all these multimillionaires and billionaires are buying up all the real estate so compared to that i guess the 70s seems like a golden era (laughs) you know because you could afford to be there and artists could afford to be there and they weren't because the commerce was not so significant nobody was making so much money that they overshadowed everybody you know they didn't have there were successful artists but maybe they just had a slightly bigger loft or a studio assistant, you know? They weren't Jeff Koons, and they didn't have 150 people working for them. Now we have that. And, you know, people are resentful because they, they don't, can't own that big piece of real estate. So, also women's work is, you know, the sales of women's work is at a much lower level. So we get met less money per painting. And even the highest the highest grossing women are way below with the highest grossing men on the auction scale, which everybody reads. So you know you're making less money and you're selling less. And that's pretty much a given in terms of gender. Um, you know there's a few successful people but they're not making the kind of money that the men male artists are making so they don't have the um you know then they can't afford the loft and then they can't afford the assistant and the you know art supplies are expensive and if they have children child care is expensive nothing is paid for in new york in the u.s you know we have no child free child care we have no you can't even get maternity benefits you can't even get maternity leave much less benefits so it, you're kind of stuck you know, it's very hard so a lot of people give up that's what I meant by people giving up they give up because they can't do it they can't make the sacrifices and why should they you know, they don't want to make the sacrifice and um, I, you know, I, no, I can't be judgmental about it, <laughs> you, know, I, it's not, it's, it you know it's not you know, I can't encourage anybody to pursue this line of work My parents were against it because they were artists, so they knew (laughs) it was really bad. (laughs) It's a bad idea to go into art. But um, they don't tell you that in art school. (laughs) It's a really bad idea. And poetry might even be worse than art. So um, that's my advice for young artists. (laughs) No, that's just a joke. Actually, I know quite a few successful young artists.
1: 1986.
0: First issue of meaning, Running on Empty, an artist's life in New York. You need to build up your stamina. Paint larger paintings. You need a larger studio. Move downtown. Rent a basement space. Simplicity. Just paint. Don't think so much. You have too many ideas. Your work is too complex. You painted this? I like the way everything is painted but the area under the chair. The images are great. It's humanist and psychological. It's not narrative enough. Put $50 more paint on the canvas. Use bigger brushes. I like everything but the hair. They're very handsome. I like them, but I can't use them. They're quite interesting. They're not for us. Come back in six months. Is this a painting of the flood? I get it. It's about the blending of cultures that we all live with every day. These should be more well-known. They're really funny. Don't be bitter. The brushwork is not aggressive enough. These may be too political. We're booked up right now. Call us in in a few months. Your work is a jumble. This painting is clearly the culmination of your work. Do you do works on paper? Is all your work that size? I like everything but the background. You could paint even bigger. What's that supposed to mean? How much is it? Are these realistic? Paint 10 more like that. Don't call us, we'll call you. Come back when you've got more. Your time will come. Don't be discouraged. Too many colors. Loosen up. Don't believe what dealers tell you. At least you're working. It takes time. Don't be impatient. You're not ambitious enough. Your slides are lost. Your work's too personal. Don't believe what other artists tell you. Why don't you paint on the other wall? Too much sexual imagery. You're still painting? It's narrative and non-narrative at the same time. Of course, your hand will develop in 10 years. I get it now. So where do you want to show? He can't sell anything. Where do you get those images? Send me your slides. I like your old work better. Come back when you've got six more. Keep working. Just ignore the outside world. Go to more openings. Introduce yourself to her. I'll recommend you. It's too lyrical. I get it. I don't get it. Use your whole arm. These seem big enough. Just keep working. Something will happen. Oh.